0: As we call you, Lord, you call us friends. Lord, that just blows my mind. Lord, and I just, uh, I can't help but Fall more and more in love with you, Lord Jesus. Lord, be with us now as we open up your word, Lord, as we try and get a little closer to you, Lord God. Lord, as we reach in, Lord. Lord, draw us close. Draw us near by your Spirit. Lord, reveal yourself to each heart here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. A discipleship group, there I am, the discipleship group that we've been getting together on Tuesday nights and talking about some things. One of the things we, we've been discussing, when we look at the judges, remember, the Hebrew word for judges is, is easier easier to understand as heroes. These are the men that God calls to come and deliver His people, the heroes to come and save the day. And we've been looking at several of them, and we see a big key in the fact that when the Spirit of God is upon a man and He's called by God, to do something, to fulfill some purpose in his life, and he submits to that purpose and allows God to work through him, he becomes a hero of the word. Now for you and I, unlike the children of Israel at this time, every believer in this room is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection power of Almighty God that raised Jesus from the dead, the power of the resurrection lies within each of us. The ability to fulfill that call which God has on our life is already living within us. We give our life to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit moves in. Now it's up to me to submit my life to that call that he has called me with and to allow, to enable the Holy Spirit to overflow, to allow the Spirit to move. And we know the scripture tells us, do not quench the Holy Spirit. So therefore, what does that tell us? It's possible to quench the Holy Spirit, right? It's possible to choke off what the Holy Spirit wants to do because God will not force you to be the man or woman God's calling you to be. One of the really exciting things as we study about Gideon in Judges chapter 6 is he is the judge upon which the majority of time will be spent. He's, He's going to have the largest section of Scripture dealing with Gideon. And... The scripture paints for us that picture of Gideon as he deals with his own personal doubts about whether or not God's going to be there for him. Anybody ever had those? Doubts about whether or not God's going to fulfill his promises. Doubts about whether or not God really cares. That's exactly what happens in Gideon. In fact, in chapter 6, and we're just going to go through chapter 6 tonight... When we look at that, he's going to answer those four questions. He's going to lay those questions out before God. He's going to lay out his doubts. He's going to lay out his struggles. And God's going to record it all for us. So we can look and we can see. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things that happened before happen for our admonition. That's a big word that means for our learning. That we will look at where they were successful, that we will look at where they struggled, that we'll look at the answers that God gave and realize that the answers for Gideon are still the answers for us. That the power for Gideon to be who God called him to be is the same power for us. When we look at the life of of Gideon, here's what we'll see. We'll see Gideon go into three phases in his life. And many of us, perhaps, are in one of those phases... The first phase, he's, he's a coward. He's afraid to do anything. The second phase, God makes him a conqueror. And he realizes that through the Lord he can do all things. And then the third phase in his life is compromise. And he begins to believe his own press. Never believe your own press. He begins to believe in himself. And he's going to struggle in that area. And so in our lives, many times we'll find ourselves in one of those places. Hey, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us at one time or another have been in a place of compromise. Most of us at one time or another have been in a place of cowardice where we're afraid to make a stand for the Lord. And we've experienced victory and been the conqueror. The scripture lays out for us in the book of Romans you're we're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us, right? So we have that, we have that innate ability by the Spirit anointing us to be more than what we are. But like Gideon, many of us are plagued by those doubts. And so chapter 6 is such an important chapter as we look at it to allow the answers that God gives to Gideon to supply the answer for us in those same questions. And understand the truth of a God who loves us so much he will not allow us to stay in sin. Let's look. Chapter 6, verse 1. Ooh, I almost forgot. I looked down and everything was fuzzy. Has that ever happened to you, John? It happens to me. Is everything fuzzy these days? No? Maybe I need to get my eyes fixed. <clears throat> okay, very, 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord... So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Okay, we see the repeat of the cycle, right? That time of rest leads to a time of rebellion. So they had a time of rest. Things were good. They find themselves at the the death of the judge going into a time of, of rebellion. And when they enter into that time of rebellion, God is a holy God who hates sin. And a holy God who hates sin and loves his people will always bring chastisement upon his people. He will do whatever it takes for his people to look to him. So he puts them in the hands of the Midianites. Now, as we study the scripture, I want you to realize how closely related all these people groups are. You guys remember a fellow named Abraham? Yeah, the Midianites came from Abraham. Who else came from Abraham? The Jews, right? The, the nation of Israel came from Abraham. Abraham uh, and his wife, maybe you wondered about his wife Keturah. Keturah, who we read about at the end of Abraham's life, uh, the children that she has becomes what we know as the Midianites. And here we see the Midianites being used by God to chastise his people because they were uh, turning their back on the Lord. And entering into a time of worshiping other idols. Bringing other things before God in their life. The amazing thing is, and try not to lose sight of this. As they're in a the land of Israel, they are in a land that is required to trust in someone for water. Do you understand that? Still today. Living in Israel means you are required in the land of milk and honey to trust in Someone for water. Now how many friends does Israel have around them right now? Not very many, right? So since they don't have any, they have two fresh water sources in the entire country. One is the Jordan River, which is about the size of Deep Creek. And the other is the Sea of Galilee, which would be its size of just about any of the reservoirs we have around here. So, we have one reservoir one river, and that's all the fresh water they have. So what is required of them? The Lord said, if you obey me, I will bless you and I will give you what? The early and the latter rain. I'll supply you with water. But the God that they would struggle with continually going into idolatry is the God Baal. And Baal was the Canaanite God of the rain. So the children of Israel, when they go into a time of idolatry, they are exchanging Almighty God and fulfilling His promise to them and understanding that if we obey God, He'll bring us the rain. He's going to give us the things we need. And they're exchanging Him for Baal, a false god, a demon entity that proclaims Himself to be the god of rain. And His wife is Ashereth, the goddess of fertility. And between the two, they are worshipped through illicit sex. So the worship of Baal met that desire within mankind to to fulfill his needs and reject what doesn't come natural. And that is trusting in Almighty God to fulfill his promise. So they go to Baal. And God turns them over to, to the Midianites. And for seven years, the Midianites rule them. And this is how they rule them. Now, this is different than the other times. The other times, there's a king over them. I mean, they're, they're enslaved. They're, they're, they're in that type of bondage. But this is different. This a situation we'll read about. As we go on, it says in verse 2, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. Now if you will, the Midianites coming into the land have now pushed the children of Israel to that place where the Canaanites had been at one time. When Joshua put them out of the land and they were in the dens and the caves and the strongholds in the mountains and all the children of Israel had to do was go take care of them and God would have given them the land. Now that's flipped. Now the children of Israel are in that place. They're living in caves. They're living in dens. They're living like animals. And the Midianites don't really care to rule over them. They just want to rob them. Listen. So it was whenever Israel had sown. Midianites would come up. Also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them. And destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. And leave no sustenance for Israel. Neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. So. Every year at harvest, the Midianites would come. And as the harvest is being brought in and the children of Israel are trying to feed themselves, the Midianites would come down and they would take for them whatever they wanted and destroy the, the rest and leave Israel with nothing for seven years. How many years of emptiness do we have to have before We would call upon the name of the Lord to bring that which is missing in our life. Seven years of emptiness. Seven years of labor and receiving nothing for their labor. But it took seven years for the children of Israel to call upon the Lord. Seven years of humiliation, living in caves and dens. Seven years of having absolutely nothing. And it really speaks to the the heart of man, because the heart of man, folks, is rebellious against the Lord. And just think about it like this for those of you who are married, how many times do we have an argument with our wife, and it seems like the hardest thing is that thing which we need to say, and that is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I got used to that saying. Yeah, if you get used to it, it's not so bad. But realizing, I mean, there have been times that Kathy and I aren't quite clicking and I know all I have to do is submit myself to what the Word teaches, give honor unto my wife as unto the weaker vessel, to treat her the way God wants me to treat her, to love her, to lay down my life for her. It's all I got to do to make it right. And it's not hard, but my heart My nature is screaming within me the whole time. No! Don't do it! But you see, the same things occurring in these people's lives with a relationship with the Lord. Listen, how many of you have known people who who you shared the Lord with and, and just are at that place where they just can't turn their life over to the Lord? They can't lay aside that rebellion. For the children of Israel in this particular situation was seven years of emptiness. How many years, for those of you who, who farm, how many years could you have your entire crop taken away, wiped out, burned, destroyed, before you're upside down, hopelessly buried? I wouldn't think it would be seven. Some of us be one. So, here we see this this, this judgment from the Lord. Now the judgment from the Lord, folks, the judgment from the Lord is not to destroy his people. The judgment is to show them. You're praying to Baal. You're being involved in these illicit sexual activities. Worshiping this false God to give you the rains. To give you the fertility of the land, the crops. And for seven years, he's given you nothing. But do you know the funny thing? I bet for the first four years, they blame God. Isn't that what we do? Maybe God's not our king. Maybe we're in a place where we have an idol set up before the Lord. I don't know what that idol might be, prosperity. That idol might be any number of things that can come between us and the Lord and, and, and our desire to see His kingdom come and His will be done. And as that idol sets itself up in our life, And things begin to unravel. And we look to God and say, where are you? And all the while, perhaps, the Lord is saying, lay down your gods. Lay down your gods and turn to me. For the children of Israel, Israel, seven years. And unless your repentance is evidence of a desire to turn away from sin... And be what God wants you to be. Your repentance is only remorse. And that's not the same thing. I'm sorry that I'm in this place. Every time I go and speak in the jails, I see a lot of people with remorse. I'm sorry I'm here. Repentance reaches the point where they're going to make a change. Every person in jail knows the statement of what is is, insanity. Insanity. Right, Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. If we do the same thing over and over again, you're going to have the same result over and over again. And this is what the children of Israel needed to understand. So in verse 5 it says, For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both... Uh, Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land and destroy it. So the first mention of camels being used as a military device. Here's what was important about them using camels. A cavalry of camels could cover 100 miles a day. Now, in those days, that's a lot of ground. That's a lot of ground. And so they would come with their camels and they would come and they would take everything that they had, everything that the harvest brought and then they'd go away and then you're left alone for the rest of the year to to do whatever you could to fight your way back, to try to make something to plant something, to do something only the next year to have them come again for seven cycles scripture says in verse 6, so Israel ...was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. In this situation, I believe the children of Israel were at a very bleak and intense brokenness before God. You ever been at a place where there's just absolutely nothing you can do? Then you understand what it is to be in that place of brokenness. Nowhere else to go but to call upon the name of the Lord. They could have called upon the name much sooner... But they're at a place of brokenness. They're at a place of desperation. And every time we are at a place of brokenness and desperation. And we call upon the name of the Lord. He will answer. Always. And so the Lord answers. But look what he does. A little bit different from the other ones in verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Because of the Midianites. That the Lord did what? Sent a deliverer? No, the Lord sent a prophet. The Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, and this prophet is going to repeat to them the words of the angel of the Lord from Judges chapter 2. Remember, the angel of the Lord, the, the messenger of Yahweh, or if you will define it as such, the word of Yahweh, or Jesus Christ in the flesh. The angel of the Lord is a, what's called a theophany, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before the incarnation. He, come, he came in chapter 2 and said, the Lord told you how to walk. He told you what to do. He gave you his word and you have been disobedient. And that disobedience is bringing upon you all of these calamities. And here, before the Lord sends a deliverer, he makes sure that the children of Israel understand why they're in the place they're in. He sends a prophet. And the prophet shares with them these very same things. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out from before you, and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. When he says, do not fear the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. What he's saying is, don't pay respect to them. But that's what they were doing. They would turn their heart away from God and give their respect to these idols. Give their respect to the worship of these false gods. And so they were in a place of disobedience. So the word of God came again to the children of Israel to tell them, this is why you're in this place. Because you have placed gods before you. You are worshiping false gods. Basically, all God, listen, all God is doing when you look at this is giving them what they're asking for. Right? Is Baal able to make it rain? Is he able to put the Midianites away? Is he able to take care of them? No. But they're rejecting the truth, worshiping the false god, and so God takes a step back and lets them have what they're asking for, the god Baal. And the god Baal does nothing for them. And they find themselves in a place of bondage, and then they're calling upon the name of the one true God, the God who is able to save. And so he sends his prophet to say, listen, this is why you're here. Pay attention to what the word of God says. Pay attention to what the word of God needs to do, how it needs to work in your life, how it needs to work in my life. We need to allow God's word to do that work. We need the pure water of the word of God. We need fed with the milk of the word. We need fed by the meat of the word. We need to receive the support of the word of God. And then we come to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. Again, the angel of the Lord, capital A, capital L O R D, the messenger of Yahweh himself, the word of God or Jesus Christ. He comes and he sits outside under a terebinth tree. And as he's sitting under the terebinth tree, which is in Oprah. Yes, she's in the Bible. Which belonged to Joash the Abysserite. While his son, Gideon, threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. We come to the first stage of Gideon's career. He's a coward. He's a coward. I don't blame him for being a coward. He's, He's... overwhelmed by the enemy. If they see him threshing wheat, they're going to take everything he has. So he goes into a wine press. Behind a wine press. And these wine presses would usually be a pit in the ground. Because you don't want to tread on grapes on a flat surface, right? All the wine just runs into the dirt. So you get down in this little pit. So he's in that little pit and he's threshing grain. It tells us two things. One, he's hiding from the Midianites. what the scripture tells us. Two, he has a meager harvest. Wouldn't you say? A wine press is not a very big place. So whatever harvest he has in there, he's threshing, hoping to get whatever he can get to get him by for the next little bit of time. And there he is, and the Lord, the angel of the Lord comes to him. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. O oh, mighty man of valor. This is one of the things I love about God. He doesn't see us how we are. He sees us how we can be. You realize when God looks at you, you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see you as that failure or that sinner or that person through, to whom you're unable to overcome the, the challenge that lies before you, he sees you as a mighty man of God. He sees you able because he is able. And so he sees Gideon not as a coward, not as a guy who's afraid, not as a guy who has doubts. He sees him as he's going to be, a oh, mighty man of valor when the holy spirit saw david he was a young guy he was good looking ruddy he was a little bit wild lived out with the sheep probably was a little bit ripe smelling but when the holy spirit saw him he saw the king he wasn't a king yet you could have put david on the throne right then when he was however old he was at that time 15 16 years old and he'd have been a miserable failure He needed the 10 years of training hiding in the dens and the caves and all those things that God brought into his life to make him a man after God's own heart. But God saw him before that ever occurred and knew his heart and what he was capable of being. That's the way God saw Gideon. That's the way God sees you. That's the way God sees me. When he looks at us, he's not thinking, oh, miserable wretch, why in the world did I save this guy? But he's looking and saying, I know you are able. And he'll call us. Mighty men and women of valor. Able to overcome the challenge that lies before you. And so he calls to Gideon in this place. And Gideon said, first question of doubt. Question number one, does God really care about me? Listen, he says, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, and why then has all this happened to us? You know, that's still a question they ask in Israel today. Most of Israel are not believing. 10% would be what you would call a practicing Jew. That means 90% are either agnostic or atheistic. And when you go and you begin to talk to them and you talk about them being God's chosen people, they think, what's the big deal about being God's chosen people? Look at what it got us so far. The most persecuted people on the planet Earth. How can you say that God is for us? Same thing Gideon's saying here. How do I know you really care for me? How do I know that you really there for us I, you know if you're really for us how can we possibly be in this place now answer the question for him why are they in that place the prophet already told him right because you rejected the lord you're in this place because you turned your back on him you're in this place does god really care for us yeah he's there isn't he isn't god standing before gideon right now Almighty God is standing there on the ground. His feet, human feet, touching earth. Jesus, before he would wear flesh, before he would die on the cross, standing before Gideon, and Gideon is saying, Do you really care about us? Speaking to the one whose back would bear the stripes. Who would wear the cross? How do we know? God, how can we know that you're for us since all this has happened to us? And where are all God's miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. The first question of doubt, God never answers. Because the first question of doubt is not a real question, but it is a statement of frustration. For the situation that we find ourselves in. I used to say it like this. God hates me. I'd look at the circumstances in my life. I'd look at the way things were coming together, the way things were going on, and I would say the only thing that I can pull from all this is God must hate me because look at how everything's going south. Now, I never was willing to look at my life. I was never willing to look at my choices. I was never willing to look at the dumb things that I was doing that was enabling or bringing me to the place that I found myself. But I was pointing to God, just like the children of Israel, blaming them. Blaming God for their situation, even though they rejected the Lord and were worshiping Baal. Who should they have been blaming? See, when we come to the prophets, the Lord's going to say to the children of Israel, You guys search among all the nations, for it is never the case that the nations who serve gods, who really aren't gods, would leave their gods and go to other nations' gods. It never happened. Because the nation's God were like their mascot. And if they lost a battle, all that meant was this nation's mascot, their God, was stronger than theirs. But they wouldn't exchange their false God for the other false God. They would just rally it up and come back against them. But the nation of Israel, whoever was around them, they'd exchange the true God for the false. And then they would not hold the false God responsible for their situation. They would hold the true God responsible. And then they asked the question, don't you care about us? Yeah, I care about you. I care about you. If I didn't care about you, I I would just walk away. But here I am, wearing flesh and blood, standing before you underneath the terebinth tree. And in a thousand years or so, I'm going to come, be born of a virgin. I'm going to give my face to those who pluck out my beard. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be hated. I'm going to die to pay the price for the failure that you continue to make and give to you the one thing you can't produce if you'll just trust in me. Do you care about us, God? Yeah. Oftentimes when I'm coaching, kids get the idea that if I'm on their case... It means I don't like them. And often when we're parenting. And we're doing things with our children. They think we're on their case. We don't like them. If I like them I just let them do whatever they want. Right? No we don't do that. Because the Bible says if you love your children. You'll do what? Discipline them promptly. Because that's what love does. Love cares enough. Now. Now. When there's no love, love just, the loving one just walks away. Eh? Good luck. Good luck. But here, the question, how do we know, how do we know that God cares for us? Does God really care? He's standing, the answer's standing right before him. The answer's standing right there, the angel of Yahweh, Jesus Christ in the flesh before them. Then the Lord turned to him, and he says in verse 14, Go in this might of yours, and you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he receives the word of God. Does God really care for us? Jesus stands before him and says, Go. Go in this might that you have. Now, what might does he have? Not much, right? That's important for us to recognize. Don't look at Gideon and think, Ooh, he's a mighty guy now. Remember he's hiding in a hole? Remember the position that he finds himself in? Have you ever took a look, took a time to study the people that God uses? The people whom God calls. Here God says, go in this might of yours. For it's not by might nor by power, but how? By the Spirit, says the Lord. So you take this little faith of a mustard seed. And you go. And I'll deliver the Midianites into your hands. This is what God tells them. But think about who God cho- chooses. God chose Moses. He was 80 years old. And wanted for murder. Right? God chose Jacob. Who was a liar. A manipulator. A schemer. And a con artist. God chose Elijah. And Jeremiah. Both suffered from incredible depression both he called Hosea Hosea couldn't keep his marriage together of course he was married to a prostitute that makes it hard Amos God called Amos Amos was a farmer with absolutely no training whatsoever God called Peter who tried to kill a man with a sword couldn't even do that right God called John Mark he's the writer of the book of Mark he quit on the Apostle Paul in his first missionary journey said I can't do this God called Paul Paul couldn't get along with his first partner Barnabas they had a fight that was so bad they split up and Paul could not stay out of prison Every time he turned around, he's in prison. These are the people that God calls. But think about what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no flesh would glory in his presence. So when God looks at Gideon and says, Gideon, go in this might of yours. He realized he's talking to a coward who has no might. But just like Paul, when Gideon would say, I am weak, then the Lord would say, when you are weak, then I am strong. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And when we think about the story of Gideon, we realize that's true, don't we? Because I can tell you the number of the army, 135,000. That was the innumerable host, 135,000 and however many camels. And Gideon's going to call together a mighty army of 32,000. The odds are 5 to 1. We know the story, right? The odds are too strong in the Israelites' favor. This is the odds that God prefers. I want you to write this down on your refrigerator and remember it. The odds that God prefers is 450 to 1. Same odds Elijah had against the priests of Baal, same odds Gideon's army is going to have against the Midianites. 450 to 1. Oof. That's a lot of guys for one person to take care of, isn't it? Go in this might of yours Gideon and I will give you I will give you the victory. Have I not sent you? So we come to the second question of doubt. Does God really know what he's doing? Anybody ever ask that question? First, does God care first? Does he really care about us? Yes, there's Jesus Christ standing before Gideon. Number two, God, do you know what you're doing? Why does Gideon say that? Because he's sending him. What are you sending me for? So he said to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you And you will defeat the Midianites as though by one man. Isn't that incredible? God, do you really know what you're doing? The Lord says, I know what I'm doing because I'm going with you. And it will be as though they are defeated by one man. You don't need much. Listen, one person filled by the power of the Lord is a majority. You understand that, yeah? One person against, it doesn't matter how many, is a majority. Hey, they could deliver. God's able to do it. Question number two. Do you know what you're doing? God says, yes, I know what I'm doing. I'm going with you. And if I go with you, I will give you the victory. Because God's commandments are God's enablements. God's commandments are God's enablements. If God calls you to do something... He enables you to do it. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So he goes on in verse 17. Then he said to him, If I now have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who who talks with me. So don't leave from here. This is Gideon talking. I pray until I come back to you. And before... And, or until I come back to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. Now, who's he talking to? Jesus Christ. He says, uh, I want to know if you're really, you know, someone sent by God. So wait here and I'm going to prepare an offering. So Jesus says, okay, I'll wait. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread and an, from an ephah of flour The meat he put in a basket, he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Now, the things that he brings are an extremely extravagant and costly gift, considering for seven years everything they owned had been taken by the Midianites. Food had more value than gold. So he brings out this meal the ephod of flour that he used to to make the the loaf with which he's going to offer unto the Lord was enough to feed a family for several days. It's not a meager thing that he does. He puts together together the best that he can put together and he brings them out. And it took him probably about an hour. And for that hour, Jesus hung out under the terebinth tree and waited for Gideon. Here comes Gideon. And so he presented them to him. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock. And pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of a staff that was in his hand and touched the meat. And the unleavened bread and fire came from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed from his sight. Poof, he's gone. Gideon is sitting there talking to a guy Flesh and butt, blood, just like you and I. And he's laying out the sacrifice. And, and the Lord, Jesus Christ, tells him how to set it out. And he sets it out as he says. And he lifts up his staff. And he touches the, the offering. Fire comes out of the rock, devours the offering. And pff, he's gone. Right before his eyes. And just in case we would miss it, the Bible tells us what Gideon was thinking. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Oh Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Why does he say that? Because the scripture lays out for us that no man can see God and live. No man can see God and live. What's he seeing? He's seeing Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, God in the flesh. He's seeing the angel of the Lord and he declares that the angel of the Lord is God by the panic that is in his voice when he says, oh no, I saw him face to face and I'm still here. Uh, But just in case you're not really sure that's what he thinks, we go to the next verse. And the Lord said to him, the Lord said to him, from where? He's not standing in front of him anymore. So the Lord is speaking to him out of the heavens. The Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon knew that he had seen Almighty God face to face. And he believed that in seeing Almighty God face to face, he would die. What the scripture says, no man can see God and live. They're speaking of God the Father, for he is pure, holy, light, light. Inapproachable, invisible, unable to have a relationship with. He is the great I am. But who reveals to you and I the great I am? The only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. His name is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. He is the God, God Almighty that we can see visually that we can relate to that we can touch that we can know we know the father when we know the son isn't that what john said in first john if you know the son you know the father if you know the father you will also receive the son they are not apart from one another you can't pick and choose it's a package deal they come together so the lord said don't worry you're not going to die So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an opera of the Abyssalites. Now, verse 25, it came to pass that same night that the Lord said to him, I want you to take your father's young bull the second bowl of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that's beside it. That's the Ashereth pole. That was the wife of Baal. Cut down the image that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bowl and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So, the Lord has given him a commandment. God's commandments are what? His enablements, right? So, we come to the third question of doubt. Will God take care of me? Will God take care of me? As we look. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he was afraid of his father's household and the men of the city... Too much to do it by day. He did it by night. Not really sure God's going to be able to take care of me if I do this in the daytime. So we're going in at night. Now before we're too hard on Gideon. There's other people that we know that came to the Lord Jesus Christ by night. Because they were afraid of what other people would say, right? You and I would not know perhaps the greatest verse in the scriptures. Except for the fact that this fellow named Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Nick at night came and Jesus said to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So we see the Lord laying that out. Nick came, Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night. Here Gideon, he's not really sure that God's going to be able to take care of him. So he goes and he's obedient to what God has said. But he does it at night because he's still afraid of men. And listen to what happens in verse 28. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was an altar of Baal torn down. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull, which was being offered on the altar, which had been built. So they said to one another, who did this? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. So the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. Because he has torn down the altar of Baal. And because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him... Be put to death by morning, for if he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Joash, Gideon's father, when they come to him to have Gideon, he says, Are you guys pleading for Baal, this god whom we worship, this god whom we served, this god to whom we have sacrificed our children? And you're pleading for him? If he's a god, he can take care of it himself. If Gideon's done something against a true God and Baal wants him, Baal can have him. But you're not going to get him. See how deceived the children of Israel are? This is not some pagan nation. This is the children of Israel ready to kill one of their own because he made a sacrifice of the altar of Baal to the true and living holy God. And they want him. Get Gideon. Kill him. He took the altar of Baal down. How's that altar of Baal been working for you so far? Not so good. But you talk to people who are struggling in, in, in different areas in their life. Maybe they're struggling with alcohol. They're struggling with drugs. And you go take that stuff away from them. They get irritated. What are you doing pouring out my alcohol? What do you mean you took my stash and flushed it down the toilet? Well, listen, brother, how's that stash been working for you so far? Well, not very good. Why are you clinging to it so tight? That stash ain't going to save you. The alcohol is not going to save you. That God that you're worshiping is not even real. Put down your God. Put down those things that separate you from the true and living God. And give your life wholly and completely to Him. And enjoy what Jesus Christ promised when He said, Whom the Son sets free is free indeed That's what God come to do If we're not experiencing that perhaps our right hand doesn't know that in our left hand we're clinging to a false god a false hope a false thing something that we've placed before almighty God and we need to lay it down We need to lay it down. So Gideon does it. His father says, let Baal do for himself. Therefore on that day he called him Jerub Baal. Jerub Baal. Which means, let Baal plead. That's what they begin to call Gideon. We're going to see that name interchange in the next several chapters. Jerub Baal saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Remember that name, the valley of Jezreel, because that's one of many names synonymous for the same piece of land. It's just below a mountain called Megiddo. It's the valley where Elijah did battle with the priests of Baal. It's the valley in which Gideon is going to have his battle. It's the valley in which the final battle, the armies of the Lord, will be fought. Har Megiddo, or Armageddon. The valley of Jezreel, where the prophet declared that the blood will flow to the horse's bridle. By the way, that's deep. Here they are. (laughs) Yeah. Even still. So here we are in the valley of Jezreel. The armies of the Midianites have gathered. So we've come now to the seventh time, the seventh season, the seventh year. Here they are coming to steal everything again. And they gather in the valley of Jezreel. Now what you need to understand... The Valley of Jezreel had the King's Highway. It was one of the main highways with, where people would travel throughout the land. And the, and the Valley of Armageddon right off that highway. And on top of Mount Megiddo, you can see them coming, caravans coming. That's why they would put usually around Megiddo some type of stronghold in order to defend themselves. But here they see from the top of Megiddo, there are the armies of the Midianites. 135,000 men come to take everything we have. Right as they're yelling for Gideon. Send Gideon out here because he destroyed that that altar of Baal. But listen, here is the most important thing to ever understand. Verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So there's Gideon and all these people want to string him up. They're not very happy with him. And at the same time, the armies of the enemy are gathering there in the plains of Armageddon or the valley of Jezreel. And Gideon is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he grabs up his trumpet and he blows his trumpet the trumpet of Gideon. He blows it there in his hometown. It says, he blew the trumpet and the Abyssalites gathered behind him. Remember, he was from that family, that group within Manasseh. So all the Abyssalites, they say, hey, he's one of us. He's blowing the trumpet for war. We're coming. So the Abyssalites come. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. He also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. And they came up to meet him. So all these guys come, and we know how many? 32,000. 32,000 come. 32,000 answer the call against 135,000. And I'm sure they're not feeling very comfortable about those numbers. Five to one. Every one guy's got to kill five guys in order for them to win. And if one guy doesn't kill five guys, then his five gets spread around against the guys who are left. Five to one, they gather together and we come to the fourth question of Gideon. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, question number four, does God keep his promises? God already said he would give him, right? He's already told him a couple of times, hey, I'll I'll deliver him into your hands. You go, I'll deliver him. You go in this might that you have. It's not saying, Gideon, you've got to learn to be stronger. Gideon, you got to learn to be better. He's saying, You just go with what you have right now, and I'll deliver him as to one man. You go. Question number four, his fourth question of doubt, Will you keep your promise? Is God going to keep his promises to us? Those are the questions that we ask. Will God keep his promise? So Gideon said, Look, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And so it was. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. So he says to the Lord, I'm going to put out this fleece before you. Now, in this area, understand that this... Putting out a fleece for Gideon was a problem for him. It was doubt to the promises that God had already told him he would do. But God was patient with Gideon and he gave him the signs that he sought. God was patient with Gideon and he showed him. He said, okay, I'll put dew on the fleece and not on the ground. So he picks up the fleece, rings it out. There's water in the fleece. God just did what you asked. Okay, here we go. Let's go. I mean, the army's right out there. They're ready. Your army's gathered. God's already promised. But then Gideon says, well, you know, just in case, that's not really God. It says, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test. I pray just once more with the fleece. Now let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground all around, let there be dew. And so God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. When we look at this part of the story, you need to realize that Gideon just wasted two days. We don't know what happened on those two days. Here's what I do know. The Midianites were used to gathering in the Valley of Jezreel. And from the Valley of Jezreel, they would begin to attack the different tribes around the area and steal from them everything they had. And I have a hard time believing that the Midianites gathered there for two days and waited for Gideon to figure out what was going on. So, I believe the Midianites began attacking the moment they gathered. And day one, they went in somewhere and slaughtered people and took their stuff. And day two, they went in and they slaughtered people and they took their stuff. But God was patient with Gideon. God's still going to deliver. But God chooses to use imperfect vessels like you and I. To accomplish his purpose here. God still uses imperfect vessels like you and I. To accomplish his purposes here. And the choices we make in that. They they have ramifications. Things happen. People's lives are changed. if, If we won't receive the promises of God and move forward. And so he struggled. And twice God gave him a sign. Now listen. God tells people all the time to ask him for a sign. Well, let me back that up. Not all the time, but there are times God says, ask me for a sign. There there are several times in Scripture, Genesis 24, Abraham's servant, Eliezer, as he's looking for a wife for Isaac, he says, Lord, let it be the woman who will bring water to my camels. Let this be the sign that that's the woman you've chosen. Later on, we see in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan with his armor bearer, he says, Lord, give us a sign. If we get there, and as they're talking, they're saying this, then we'll know you've delivered them into our hands. And the Lord lets them see see that sign. In Isaiah chapter 7, God himself instructs Ahaz to ask for a sign from God. So there are times that God says, ask me for a sign. But there are also times when God lays out his promise for us and he expects us to believe that he'll keep his promise. For example, Romans 8 28, right? For we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's either true or it's a lie. If it's true, it's always true. All things work together for good over and over and over again the promises of god we can cling to those promises and allow him to carry us through we find gideon here in chapter six in the first stage coward but in chapter seven he becomes more than a conqueror through jesus christ who strengthens him and who who strengthens us amen why don't you stand with me let's pray Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity just to back up and take a look at Gideon. And take a look, God, because you record for us his doubt. You don't record for us his doubt so that you can bag on Gideon, because he's listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of those who trusted you implicitly. But you record for us his doubt so that we can learn the answer to the question. Does God really care about me? Yeah, he sent his son. Does God know what he's doing? Absolutely. For I will never leave you or forsake you. Where you go, I go. Ah, Lord, will you keep your promise to me? I will keep my promises. Even if you ask for a sign. I will keep my promises. Lord, as we struggle in this area, we struggle with doubt. We struggle with the things that come against us. God, help us to realize that the spirit of the Lord that was upon Gideon, the spirit of the Lord that was upon David, the spirit of the Lord that was upon Joshua, he lives within us. and he has given us promises and he has called us he has called us to be his martus his witnesses he has called us to be living sacrifices for I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God present your body a living sacrifice holy and acceptable which is your reasonable act of worship You have called, you have commanded, you have enabled. It's just left to us to answer the call, to submit to the power of God working in our life and discover that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who gave himself for me. God, I pray you move among us in a mighty way, Lord. As we leave this place, may we go filled with your spirit to fulfill your call in our world and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we invite you guys.